The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We're talking today about a topic that I'm sure many of you have seen in in the news. Um, this terrible chemical spill that happened in West Virginia happened back on January 9th, and um, it ended up uh, polluting the waterways. F- that served the drinking water for 300,000 or so people in about nine counties of West Virginia. And so today, uh, what we're going to be talking about is the lessons that we should be learning from how this happened, uh, what happened after the spill occurred and was detected, and how we might apply those lessons on a broader scale as we continue to see more and more chemicals used um, as a part of our energy portfolio, whether it's with coal, uh, natural gas, oil, what have you. There's chemicals involved that are around our waterways. And our guest today is a leader within an organization I really respect. They're called the Waterkeeper Alliance. You can actually find their website at www.waterkeeper.org. And Donna Lizenby is our guest today. And Donna, I'm so glad that you could join us on Go Green Radio. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here, Jill. Well, before we dive into the details of the chemical spill that happened in West Virginia, I'd really like for you to talk about your background as it pertains to this issue and some of the work that you have done with the Waterkeeper Alliance. Sure. Well, I was a firefighter and a hazardous materials first responder for five years in South Carolina and then a riverkeeper for 16 years. And so over that 21 years of experience, I have responded to seven major spills, fires, or explosions that threaten the safety of drinking of public drinking water supply systems. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is three out of those seven spills that I responded to directly were related to the coal industry. Mm-hmm. So that's my direct experience dealing with major spills and drinking water issues. As far as my work at Waterkeeper Alliance, I'm the Global Coal Campaign Coordinator, and in that job I work with more than 200 waterkeepers worldwide on six continents wow. <laughs> on all coal and water pollution issues. So if they have any kind of issue uh, that threatens water as a result of coal mining, coal transport, coal burning, or coal waste products, uh, my job is to help and assist them with that response. So in the last 18 months, um, uh, Waterkeeper Alliance and our local waterkeeper organizations have brought 14 legal proceedings against coal-fired power plants in the United States for illegal water pollution. So sort of the summary of my 21 years of experience is we've seen a lot of water contamination due to coal. 
And what actually is, you know, the most common way that this happens? What contaminates the water? What, what is it? What is the substance? From coal, oh, well, gosh, from coal, coal pollutes water from at every step of its production cycle. So in the mining phase, the coal mining phase where they extract coal from the ground, mm-hmm. um, the typical pollutants are acid mine drainage, um, very high conductivity, and heavy metals that pollute waters. Not only does the mining of coal uh, pollute water with those contaminants, but it also causes streams and waterways to be filled. We've lost nearly 2,000 miles of streams in the Appalachian Mountains alone that have been buried by coal mining operations. On the transport side, our water keepers in the Pacific Northwest have legal filing against BNSF Railway. It's very active right now, and the reason for that litigation is the coal trains spill coal into waterways every time they they cross a stream, a wetland, a lake, or a river. Um, tons and tons of coal blow out of the coal trains as coal dust, and particulate coal lands in our waterways and pollutes them. And then moving on now to the coal burning process, when coal is uh, burned, the waste um, is slurried uh, out of the coal plant and usually into coal ash waste ponds, and those ponds discharge millions of gallons of water a day. Waterkeeper Alliance and our partners at Sierra Club Environmental Integrity Project, Earth Justice, and Clean Water Action just released a p- report um, totaling all the ways in which co- coal-fired power plants pollute water in every state um, that report is called Closing the Floodgates and encourage people to read it. But it found that coal-fired power plants are the number one source of toxic pollution to waterways in the United States. Not only do coal-fired power plants pollute water through their direct discharges, but when mercury is uh, the mercury air emissions that come up through the smokestacks also land on waterways and and pollute uh, waterways with with Mm -hmm. mercury. And so um, at every stage, coal pollutes water. And then we have these spills, like what we saw in West Virginia. We have catastrophic spill events related to the coal industry where some chemical used in processing coal, like the chemical in West Virginia, spills and contaminates a waterway. More commonly, though, what we've seen is coal slurry ponds or coal ash pond dams have failed and cause catastrophic, monumental spills of multi-million gallons of waste into rivers. The most recent one was the Kingston coal ash spill in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it doesn't, you don't have to be a real tree hugger to see pictures and videos of what happened there and become horrified. I mean, that is, that is a disaster, what happened there. And it seems like people forget all too quickly. Um, just how awful that was. I'd like to go back to this West Virginia spell. You know, some people may have picked up on it when they were glancing through the headlines of their news, you know, that they get on their smartphones, but they may have missed how this contamination of public water was related to the coal industry. Uh, talk to us about exactly what happened on January 9th that resulted in the contamination of public water for, as I mentioned before, 300,000 residents of West Virginia. Well, about 8.15 a.m. on Thursday morning, as people were, you know, getting up, getting ready for work, getting ready for school, they were starting the morning commute into their jobs, um, 
a lot of people in Charleston, West Virginia, the capital, uh, noticed a heavy smell of licorice in the air. It just didn't smell right. It wasn't normal. And, and they so don't they have a jelly belly the factory there, right? <laughs> and, and environmental officials to report this strange smell in the air. Um, and both the fire department and the West Virginia state officials start investigating and trying to find the source of the spill. And about two hours later, employees with Freedom Industries, and this is an industry that operates a very large bulk terminal where it, it, there's these very large bulk storage tanks, metal storage tanks, on the banks of the river um, that store uh, thousands of gallons of chemicals. Well, they noticed that one of their um, bulk tanks had leaking. Um, at, at about the same time, state environmental officials also showed up on site because they were tracing the source of the smell, and they thought it was at the bulk tank terminal farm, and they were walking on site and asking freedom officials, do you have a leak right now? Are you having a problem? Um, and sure enough, uh, they sort of, about the same time, found that one of the bulk storage tanks had leaked this chemical called 4-methylcyclohexane-methanol, and that leak had made it to the river. It had escaped the berms, the containment berms uh, weren't sufficient to hold it, um, and it had contaminated the river. And so once they had found it, it contaminated the river, the state environmental officials notified the downstream public drinking water supplier, and that was the West Virginia American Water Company. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, then they started sort of testing and analyzing the drinking water to see if if the contamination had made its way into the drinking water plant. And by about 420, they found some of contamination in the filtered water. And then once they found that, uh, the governor of West Virginia, Governor Tomlin, went on um, public radio and on television and announced a water consumption ban for nine counties in West Virginia that affected 300,000 people. Uh, By Friday morning, the next morning, President Obama had declared a disaster, federal disaster, and a short time later he ordered both FEMA and the National Guard to begin supplying drinking water to the folks in Charleston, West Virginia. Um, And it was Friday, the president of Freedom Industries, who's a guy named Gary Southern, uh, issued a very short press conference, a remarkably short press conference. He apologized for this bill and said his company was working with state environmental officials um, and offered very little additional information. Uh, Two questions for you. Unfortunately, the sort of next big thing that happened uh, is by January 12th, just, you know, uh, three days after the spill, 10 people had been admitted to the hospital and about 170 more were treated and released for problems that were attributed to the water contamination relating from the spill. So that's the sort of immediate aftermath of the spill, what exactly happened. Now, we'll stop there and see if you have questions about the right. first three days. Well, here's the thing. I think that, you know, first of all, a lot of times when people hear that the drinking water 
is contaminated. It, the worst case scenario is you don't drink or cook with it. But this was so bad that people couldn't wash their clothes. They couldn't bathe. I mean, the water was, you know, don't even touch it. You, you could only flush toilets with it. So the impact of this chemical being in the drinking water was far beyond the, you know, just don't drink out of the tap uh, situation. Now, the question that I have is, what was this chemical? And in the in the local paper in West Virginia, uh, the Charleston Gazette, they called it crude MCHM. What is that chemical for? Why was it there and who uses it? It's methyl cyclohexane methanol. And it's a wash agent that's used to wash coal. When coal comes out of the ground, it has some dirt and other impurities associated with it. And the coal companies don't want to pay to ship dirt. That's added shipping cost. And so they try and clean, wash, and process the coal so that they only ship coal, uh, you know, sellable product. And so um, this is one of the many chemicals. There's a whole slew of them that are used to wash, it, wash or cleanse coal before it's shipped. Mm-hmm. Um, was on that bolt terminal and at that location because West Virginia is a major coal supplier, and this company's business was selling chemicals to um, industry, uh, and that's how they made their living. Right. Now, 12 days after the spill, the chemical company responsible, as you mentioned, Freedom Industries, disclosed that another chemical was also present in the tank that leaked, and it was called PPH. What I'd like for you to tell us, Donna, is these two chemicals that leaked, what are the the impacts, uh, human health, uh, wildlife impacts, when these chemicals enter the environment? What do we know about about how they impact people and, well, and biodiversity? What's really remarkable is how little we know and how little human health studies have been done on both chemicals. Um, and that was one of the very uh, big challenges of the emergency responders to the spill is to try and determine what risk factors were associated with, at, in the first 12 days, the first chemical, the crude um, MHCM. And so here, here, let me just explain the regulatory framework. In the 1970s, we passed what we call, environmentalists call TOSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act. And at the time it was passed, there were about 60,000 chemicals that were in production and in use that were grandfathered, and companies weren't required to meet the new TOSCA requirements to reveal their environmental and human impacts. This is one of those old chemicals that was grandfathered. And so the only, the only studies that were done on the on the chemical were done by Eastman, the, the people who developed the chemical. And mm-hmm. most of those studies were internal to the company. They've since released them. But in the immediate after the massive spill, the emergency first responders did not know any of that. They could find very little information about those chemicals. And it's still they are still exploring and trying to learn all they can about the chemicals. I see. Eastman did a few studies on rats and a few studies on um, some uh, aquatic organisms um, on the chemicals, and there were very rudimentary reports that uh, the dangers are basically unknown. 
Donna, I want to catch up on this and ask a couple of questions after a quick commercial break. This really fascinates me. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with more on the chemical spill in West Virginia right after this quick commercial break. Don't go away. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last. Return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, Our topic today is the chemical spill that happened in West Virginia and what kind of lessons we should be learning, not just in that region, but what kind of lessons can we apply more broadly to what happened, how to prevent something like this from happening in the future, etc. Just before the break, we were talking with our guest, Donna Lisenby uh, from the Waterkeeper Alliance, and, and she was talking about how little was known about the chemicals that spilled once they made it into the public uh, water system and the drinking water system, that the first responders really had very little information about the chemicals at their disposal. And in fact, um, I was reading the online version of the Charleston Gazette, and on January 22nd, a representative from the Center for Disease Control was quoted as saying that data about the potential health effects of the chemicals that were spilled into um, the Elk River is very limited. Donna, I want to talk to you about how it is possible that a tank full of these chemicals, about which we know so little, was allowed to be stored so near the intake for the public water system. What is the lesson here? There are a lot of lessons here. Uh, first of all, 
um, it is just a fact that when we have older industries that have been in place a long time, sometimes those industries predated a drinking water intake. Um, and so later a drinking water intake gets built on a major river and it's downstream of those facilities. And um, depending on the state, because drinking water related siting of factories and facilities and siting of intakes is largely uh, regulated by the states. And so it's very different in each state in the United States. So depending on your state, um, there can be very little requirements for protection of that drinking water intake if there's an old grandfathered industry upstream. And um, and so the lesson that we and then there's another lesson here too. Another lesson associated with this bill is that the 60,000 or so chemicals that were grandfathered under Tosca, about which they're not required to um, register and provide information and make stuff public about them, that needs to be changed. And in order to protect the public and make sure. 300,000 people don't suddenly lose their drinking water for days at a time and 10 more get hospitalized and 170 more treated, is we need to have very strict requirements on what can be cited upstream of major public drinking water supply intakes um, and change how we do business in order to protect the public and our interest in safe drinking water. Let me ask you this, Donna. And lastly, I want to say this. Sure. OSCA and Clean Water Act and several other environmental laws have been passed in our country. There have been this movement afoot in Washington uh, to, to um, try and diminish the size of government, have what's called small government, and to uh, get rid of regulations that are deemed to be, um, you know, impact businesses' ability to function. And so um, the, the industrial chemicals, if they're not household chemicals, but industrial chemicals like this product is, they have, uh, we have seen the regulations guarding their safety uh, rolled back and gutted year after year after year by politicians in Washington who are more interested in serving industry than the people. And so, unfortunately for us, the current history is to do less to protect public drinking water systems than ever before. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. For our listeners who just heard you say that it, these types of issues about what is cited near a public water intake uh, area, uh, you know, that these decisions are made state by state, if they want to talk to and if they want to show up at meetings uh, – at the groups and the agencies that make these decisions about what is zoned near public water intake, you know, systems. Who is it? Is it a water board? Is it uh, state legislators? Is it local uh, city council people? Where is the decision making for those kinds of things happening? Unfortunately, there are multiple layers of decision-making. There's not one super overarching federal regulation that applies equally to all places. Hmm. And so in some states, the state regulatory agencies, the environmental regulatory agencies, has a policy um, or a law or regulation that governs the sightings of those facilities. 
um, how much can be withdrawn, uh, where they can be located, how they're constructed, what treatment minimal treatment standards the water must be treated to, although there are some federal uh, treatment standards. The siting and what's in each facility is often regulated by the states. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, there are local jurisdictions that have local protections um, for their drinking water supplies. They've, they've taken their own local efforts to secure uh, the land around and upstream of their drinking water supplies. And so uh, there's not a clear answer. The answer is it varies. There are multiple layers, and this is one area where we could stand for, um, you know, comprehensive legislation at the federal level that applies to all equally and protects the drinking water of most Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, just after the news of the spill in West Virginia made national news, I saw an interview with the mayor of Charleston, West Virginia, and amazingly to me, um, he was he was upset. He was angry and and disturbed, but he was not blaming, you know, the coal industry that used the chemical. He didn't blame the chemical company that was responsible for the leak. He was most irritated with the water company for not cleaning up the mess more quickly. And I'm paraphrasing what he said, but essentially he said that he was sure that in this day and age, there must be a way to clean these chemicals out of the water. And he just wanted the water company to make it happen. Donna, what's the truth about our ability to clean these chemicals out of the water supply? What are the limitations of modern technology in water treatment facilities? Well, the truth is there are a lot of chemicals um, that modern treatment technology does not clean out of water. The United States Geological Survey um, did a really good study uh, where they went out to several drinking water systems across the United States and several states. And um, they tested finished drinking water for a various suite of chemicals uh, to see if contamination that was in the source water, usually in the river, was making its way through the treatment process and into the raw finished water. And unfortunately, they found a number of chemicals that were making its way into drinking water. Um, Things like... um, Lipitor, like medications that mm-hmm. humans take orally, and then when we use the restrooms flushed in our toilets, it goes to our wastewater treatment plants, is discharged to our rivers, and then some community downstream has a drinking water intake, pulls that in, and in their drinking water, the USGS found um, Prozac, caffeine, uh, all kinds of um, heart pressure medications, also uh, the remnants of uh, birth control products, as well as um, herbicides, pesticides, and other um, rocket fuel in some cases, um, and and other organic pollutants that are chemical-based that our water treatment plants are not designed to clean out of water. Fundamentally, I guess I want to explain the basic principle of a drinking water facility. It, it Mostly what it does is it's designed to take out solid particles out of the water and then disinfect the water for organic contaminants. Um, so the first step in the process would be the to, to filter out the big products, you know, the big solid waste products, the chunks of wood that are in a river, you know, mm-hmm. floating solid waste like drink bottles or bottle caps and plastic. Then the next step is a sand filtration or carbon filtration process 
where the water is pushed through pore spaces between carbon or sand particles, and it removes more solid particles like dirt and little um, algae products. And then finally, it may go through a flocculation process where there's some flocculants added that attach to particles, cause them to settle out. Those are removed, and then the cleaner water is moved on to the next step in the process, which is often disinfection. And, the mo- and one of the common ways to disinfect water to treat any, say, you know, amoebas or cysts or protozoans that may little tiny particles that may be left in the water that can make people sick is to treat it with chlorine, a chlorination process, or ultraviolet light. Um, and so mostly that's what our drinking water plants do, is they remove particles and then they disinfect. They do not and are not, for the most part, most of them do not and are not as capable of eliminating chemicals. So if we don't keep them out of the waterways to begin with, they're not coming out. Is that that's the bottom right. line? Yeah, and so well, uh, there's two options. You know, there's the there's the this this mayor. I mean, if you follow out his logic that he wanted the water treatment company just to clean it out, mm-hmm. um, you know, I have two reactions to his comments. I'm gonna answer your question first, and then offer another reaction. Um, there's two options to to get at the mayor's issue. One is to require much more sophisticated drinking water treatment which would drive up the cost of drinking water for everybody who depends on it. So things like reverse osmosis and and much more complicated filtration technology that could potentially remove some of these chemicals. That's a very costly solution. So the other option, and, and what makes the mayor's comments really interesting, it ties back to local control. And it ties back to what the local or state government and how, how likely, I guess, they are to really regulate the industries that potential, have the potential to threaten drinking water. So this mayor is a mayor of a town that depends on coal jobs. So it's not surprising that he, nor the regulatory industry, the state regulator in West Virginia, has been very lax and, and one of the weakest in the nation, frankly, on regulating the coal industry and making sure they don't harm water supplies. For decades, the coal industry in West Virginia has repeatedly polluted water supplies all over the state. They have, there are major class action lawsuits that were filed as a result of coal companies polluting water in Printer and Wall, West Virginia, people and families who got sick where you could stand on the road in a community and point at every house, and somebody in each of those houses had cancer because the coal companies had poisoned the groundwater or the surface water that those communities relied on for drinking water. So, um, you know, I am being experienced with how West Virginia, how lax and and, uh, what a bad job West Virginia has done in regulating the coal industry. I'm not surprised that the mayor was hesitant to not to criticize the coal industry and rather tried to place blame on the drinking water supplier. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but on that note, Donna, it's my hope that at some point the people of states like West Virginia will be able to say, look, we're happy to have jobs that you provide, but that doesn't mean you get to poison our land, our water, and our kids. And uh, hopefully, you know, power to the people, that will happen. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, folks, there's much more Go Green Radio right after this. 
news, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And I want to point you in the direction of a website uh, that Donna, our guest today, represents. It's a great organization with a lot of information on their website. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's the Waterkeeper Alliance, and you can find their website at www.waterkeeper.org. Our guest today, if you just happen to be tuning in, is um, Donna Lisenby. She is with the Waterkeeper Alliance and has many years of experience with some of the things that we're talking about today particularly what happened with the chemical spill in West Virginia recently and the lessons that we should be learning as the general public, as public policymakers, um, all of us that we need to be taking away from this. You know, Donna, one of the things that has concerned me over the past couple of years as we have been seeing uh, more and more fracking, uh, more and more talk of, of tar sands coming through and the chemicals that are associated with you know, these various means of bringing fossil fuels to our, our energy infrastructure, that the chemicals that are being used to, whether it's to wash coal, whether it's to frack for oil and natural gas, or chemicals that are a part of the tar sand mix that comes through pipes that sometimes leak and we're running, we want to run them over aquifers and other fresh waterways. There seems to be a reticence to require companies to disclose the chemicals that they're using because they are quote unquote proprietary. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Donna, and where does the Waterkeeper Alliance stand on this issue? Well, the Waterkeeper Alliance stands very strongly and firmly on the side of full disclosure of toxic chemicals, especially when they're used in an environment where they have the potential to contaminate either groundwater or surface water. And my boss, Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., who's the president of Waterkeeper Alliance, he's, he's fond of saying that we're living in a science fiction nightmare. And the failure to disclose the toxicity, the human health threat, whether or not these chemicals cause cancer in humans, the, the failure to disclose that information to emergency first responders, 
I think is borders on criminal because it puts people at risk of unknown contamination. And the reason it's a science fiction nightmare is when you have a spill, like the one that happened in West Virginia, the people who become unwilling test victims to test the toxicity of that spill are the people who unknowingly drank it. Mm-hmm. And so it's, a, it's like this terrible mad scientist um, experiment gone out of control where you have these human guinea pigs who have no knowledge, awareness, or suddenly exposed to this potentially toxic chemical. We're not sure whether, you know, how toxic it is and what its harm is to humans. Well, they're exposed accidentally. And we're now, unfortunately now, all those people who drank this chemical and this contaminated water, we're going to learn, sadly, what the human health impact is because they have, were accidentally exposed. I think that is immoral, unethical, and wrong. Our country is so much smarter than we have the capability and the capacity to design laboratory-type tests that test these chemicals for their toxicity, publishes and makes that knowledge available so that emergency first responders know the risk and know immediately whether they need to order shutdown of the drinking water intake and stop pumping immediately and immediately, not six hours after a spill, but immediately warn the public not to drink the water. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing is this, this that the, the interest in protecting industrial polluters and their, quote, proprietary chemicals, that is trumping the interest in protecting Americans, their health, their safety, and their drinking water. And we've got that backwards. We need to protect the people over the corporations. And so Waterkeeper Alliance very firmly, very strongly, and very definitely supports full disclosure of the hazards of all these chemicals. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you're doing the work that you're doing. This is vitally important. We can't live without clean water. I mean, it's, you know, it seems so obvious. And yet uh, some of the obvious things that should be done in the public policy arena to ensure that we have access to that just aren't simply being done. And and I, I couldn't agree with you more. It is just wrong. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, in the first segment of the show that you've seen uh, waterways poisoned with toxins associated with the coal industry uh, numerous times in your career. Talk to us about some of the other disasters that you've seen. Help take us there with all five senses. Engage, engage our our smell, our, our sight, you know, all of that in helping us understand what you have seen and witnessed. Well, probably the biggest one that I responded to was the Kingston coal ash disaster on the Emory River in Tennessee, where a billion gallons of coal ash um, uh, it, uh, polluted 300 acres, a neighborhood, a community. It destroyed houses and contaminated the Emory River. And so let me try and take you back. So that, that spill happened just before Christmas um, in the middle of the night at 1 a.m., um, the way it got reported is um, when this tidal wave, 60-foot-tall tidal wave of coal ash escaped from a big earthen dam that held it back, um, 
it, it moved houses off their foundations. And there was a man who was trapped in his house and surrounded by coal ash, and they began calling 911. Oh, um, and my the emergency responders responded um, and it, to find this, it, this giant um, waste pit had exploded onto properties and into the river. Um, thankfully, that still happened in the dead of winter, and there weren't any children on the Emory River being pulled in inner tubes or on water skis behind a pontoon boat driven by the grandmother and grandfather. Um, and so no one was killed when that tidal wave hit the Emory River um, and killed fish and destroyed homes and docks and made all the physical damage that it, it made the initial wave of the spill. So about five days later after the spill, um, I paddled into Ground Zero. Um, and we put in on the river at a, at a boat landing about two miles below the spill, and we started paddling up, up river. Um, TVA had reported that they were engaged in full cleanup of the spill. They had all these assets and deployed, and they were busy cleaning up the spill and um, responding to it. So as I paddled up the river, I expected to meet cleanup crews on the river that were cleaning up the waste bill. We didn't meet, in, in the two miles that we paddled up towards the river, we didn't meet a single solitary TVA person or EPA person or <laughs> Tennessee Department of Environment Conservation person on the river that day. Um, what we saw on the river was these big floating um, cinospheres, coal ash waste. There were big plumes of it. We paddled through it. It was milky white. And then as we got closer and closer to the spill, the river, well, this once free-flowing river, uh, where people water skied, bass fishermen fished, and you could go, you know, 20 miles an hour full speed in a boat because the river was wide open. It was now inundated by these giant ashbergs, these mm. gray, black, 10-foot-tall ashbergs. And the smell, it was smelled like a fireplace of cinders and sulfur. And it, it sort of, as I encountered the waves of coal ash, the rafts of coal ash and debris and these ashbergs, it reminded me of, of what it, the, some of the biblical descriptions of hell. You know, mm. the, um, you know, the cinders and the ash and the burning and it just, I, it, I was like in a moonscape. I should have been in a free-flowing, clean river and i was in this heavily contaminated zone full of all this coal ash pollution in the middle of the river it was surreal um and so the ash physically choked the river it polluted the river it caused a fish kill and i was there collecting water samples because again same thing with the west virginia spill um the state and federal agencies were very gradually, they were slowly releasing water sample results, um, but the sample results they were releasing were from 20 miles downstream, just above where the nearest drinking water intake was, and they weren't releasing any sampling results about the impact of the spill directly in Ground Zero, what had contaminated the river right in Ground Zero. So we paddled into Ground Zero, we collected water samples, and they were analyzed uh, by uh, Appalachian State University, and we published those results on January 1st. And we found um, high levels of arsenic, 
cadmium, chromium, lead, and other metals, much higher than drinking water standards had contaminated the Emory River and much higher than anything else that had been reported by the regulatory agencies. So one of our experiences, and this was also sort of a similar experience our waterkeepers had when the Gulf spill happened, mm-hmm. is here's what we've observed in these spills. Um, it seems as if the state and federal regulatory agencies um, are slow to be able to collect samples at ground zero and then accurately tell people what's in the water, what the risk is, and what steps they should take. And when they do, they often um, try not to alarm the public. See, they're very, they're very concerned about alarming the public and causing sort of hysteria in the public and people, um, you know, doing uh, things that they think uh, sort of destabilizes, uh, you know, security and safety of people. And so they often understate the size of the spill, the impact of the spill, and the danger of the spill. And that's been a consistent experience that waterkeepers have had when the Exxon Valdez spill happened, when the San Francisco oil spill happened, when the Gulf oil spill happened, when coal slurry spills happened in Kentucky and West Virginia, when the Kingston coal ash spill happened. Um, And now it's a very similar experience that our Canadian waterkeepers are having because in Canada they just had their largest coal slurry spill in their history. Um, and we saw it repeated again in this West Virginia spill. So mm-hmm. that's our experience. Well, you know, this, I can't help it. I relate so many things to my experience as a mom. <laughs> I've got three kids. And, uh, you know, growing up, sometimes they would say, you know, Mom, I didn't mean for this to happen. And I would always say, well, but you didn't mean for it not to. And I need you to think about the consequences of your actions more fully before you actually make these kinds of mistakes. Think it through. And in that same vein, you know, it's one thing to deal with a spill like this after the fact. But there are failures in public policy that lead to these disasters. Yeah, nobody means for there to be, you know, all this coal ash flowing into a river. But if you didn't mean for it not to happen... You know, things could be done differently on the front end. I want to ask you two questions, Donna. What should public policymakers learn from these mistakes so that we don't repeat them ever again? And is anybody documenting all of these lessons learned and compiling them for dissemination to, let's say, the U.S. Conference of Mayors or the League of Cities so that our local public policy officials are a little bit quicker on the uptake when it comes to preventing these tragedies before they happen? Well, I'll answer in the big picture global sense to begin with. The first step one is to stop gutting our environmental laws. Stop gutting our Toxic Substances Control Act. Um, and, and stop this whole scale assault on the laws that are designed to protect human health and safety and environmental health and safety. So that's step one is we got to stop the assault and the rollbacks and hold the ground that we currently have. And then we need to work on improving them. Um, and so, unfortunately, in this country right now, um, you know, there are politicians in Washington whose sole agenda seems to be uh, to, to gut 
regulations and laws that are designed to protect human health and safety. Uh, my fervent wish is that those folks um, would not be reelected, uh, and that we would elect some people that are very, very serious about the public interest and want to see our company, our country protect that. So that's one, and stop the rollback. Two, then, is what's interesting is when I was a firefighter, one of the things that we had to do were, were called pre-plans. For any industry or very, very large structure in our fire district that was a particular threat uh, and a danger to human safety, we had to go in and do a fire safety inspection. We had to try and learn what chemicals were stored on site, what threat they posed, how flammable they were, how explosive they were, and then design an emergency response, what's called pre-plan, how many fire trucks would need to respond, what fire engines, how many mutual aid companies. In other words, not only the first primary fire department needed to respond, but how many additional fire departments needed to respond if that factory or that very large structure was involved, fully involved in a, in a big fire. Um, so those people... The, the professional firefighters and first responders know what the local threats are. They do, because they have to do these pre-plans. And so involving them in the planning and siting of where hazardous industry is located and giving them a stronger role in saying, no, we don't need to put bulk chemical storage tanks one mile above a drinking water intake, mm -hmm. that threat to human safety and health and drinking water is too great. So that's another thing that if, if these professionals who, whose job it is to protect us mm -hmm. from these hazardous spills and chemicals were involved in those siting and regulatory process and were encouraged to help us make it better, help us fix the problem, what is your professional recommendation on how to prevent these in the future? That would be a big step. Currently, they're not really actively involved for the most that's part. That's great in insight, Donna. Yeah, that's the first time I've ever heard anybody say that. What what great advice. Keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I just have to say that's the first time I've ever heard that suggested. I think that's great. And then the other thing is standard, standard federal, uh, federal drinking water protection would be great, you know, where there are uh, – in some states, I'll give you an example where I live in North Carolina – when there's a drinking water intake on a surface water, on a river, lake, or a stream, they establish what's called the critical area immediately adjacent to that drinking water intake and just upstream of it. And then the next zone is called the protected area. And they try and limit what can be done in the critical area and the protected area. But one of the problems is, Pre-existing industry is often grandfathered. They're not mm -hmm. required to move or change their operations. Um, and, and so it would be great if we had comprehensive federal law that standardized sort of the critical area around a drinking water intake and had very strong protections for what you could and couldn't put there. Mm -hmm. um, and then had an extended area of protection that was a protected area that had you know, maybe a little less stringent requirements, uh, but at least kept the most toxic things out of that protected area. So that's another thing that would help. 
Um, and as far as your question, are we doing anything? Is anybody doing lessons learned and writing up a report and making recommendations? Um, typically, the EPA responds uh, to these kinds of major spills. Um, they will write up site reports. In my experience, they often go on a shelf mm-hmm. and um, are not translated into changes in public policy or law. And largely, that's because in Washington right now, anything the EPA proposes to protect human health, the environment, public safety, um, is immediately criticized um, or targeted by these politicians who serve industry Mm -hmm. and um, who want less government and less regulation. Donna, there's a question we have to get to in the last five minutes of the show, but You know, before I ask that question, I would just want to put this out there to our listeners. There's an opportunity here. Somebody needs to put together a, you know, public policy for local government officials, you know, kind of a uh, protect your local environment for dummies kind of manual. Because there are organizations where our public policymakers gather for good information like this. And uh, I hope that somebody will compile that and bring it to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. So, Donna, here's the big question. You know, we hear about these instances of pollution, and yet we hear politicians at every level of government talking about clean coal. They've even got TV commercials on cable news talking about clean coal. What do they mean by clean coal, and are they being honest with the public? What is the truth? (laughs) Uh, No, they're not being honest with the public in any way. Clean coal is a PR marketing uh, campaign, um, and and nothing more than that, really. There's just no such thing as clean coal. There's, as I said earlier in the show, coal pollutes air and water at every step of its production cycle, from mining to transport to burning to storage of its waste. And you can't make it clean. It, it puts extraordinary amounts of carbon into the air, um, mercury, acid gases. It puts extraordinary amounts of heavy metals into waterways. Um, it buries waterways in the coal mining process, and you just cannot make it clean. What they hope you will take home from that message is this, this notion that they can invent some kind of carbon capture or mm-hmm. storage technology that will try and uh, remove some of the the carbon, the carbon that's produced when you burn coal or, in other cases, some of the coal companies, the the, uh, utility companies that burn coal, they they talk about clean coal as some of the pollution controls they have to add to their coal-fired power plants, which remove part of the pollution but not all of it. Um, The bottom line is it's just you cannot clean coal. You cannot make it clean. There's nothing you can do to stop uh, the heavy metal contamination and the carbon pollution that comes along with it with the technology that we currently have available. And And I would imagine that if you tried, Donna, if you tried to make it clean, it might not be that cheap source of electricity anymore. (laughs) That if we actually did uh, go through the rigor of of cleaning the coal in such a way that, you know, and, and storing the hazardous materials that are associated with it and the chemicals that are associated with it properly so that there was absolutely no public health threat, um, all of a sudden wind and solar would be more than just competitive. They would probably be um, really cheap compared to truly clean coal. 
I, I want to, in the last couple minutes that we have here, give you a chance to summarize for us, because this is the topic of, of the show today. What are the lessons we should learn? And give us the, the one-minute version of what happened in, in West Virginia. What are the lessons we should take away? The one-minute version is that coal is dirty, and the chemicals and the processes associated with it are a grave risk to people. They've been contaminating water for decades, and it needs to stop. It, so that's the big take-home message, is we need to stop the harm caused to people, waterways, air, and the environment by the coal industry. And the way to get off coal and quit coal is to take all the subsidies and the taxpayer money that helps the coal industry Take that money away from them and invest it in clean energy technology. Transition our country to clean energy sources like wind and solar. And so th- that's the biggest thing. The quicker we can get our country off coal energy and onto clean energy, the sooner we'll eliminate some of these toxic threats that the coal industry poses to humans our air, our water, and our environment. Thank you, Donna. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for being on the front lines every day with Waterkeeper Alliance. Folks, thanks for joining us. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.